Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Charlie Higson, and you're listening to Failed Critics. <laughs> Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast, where we're back to a full complement of four, because I'm your host, Steve Norman, and I'm joined by James Diamond, Hello, Owen Hughes, Hello, and the returning Jerry McCauley, Hello. who was off last week. Did you see Iron Man 3, though? I did. I like Iron Man. Quick, quickly, tell, tell the listeners what you thought of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're not going in to get blown away by cinematic mastery. It, it does what it says on the tin very well. I think all the Marvel Universe films do that. But, you know, they, they they do what they need to do. They don't do anything mind-blowing, but they're, they're very entertaining. There we are. I said quickly, and that's quick enough. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, uh, but this week, we've got a triple bill for you, and that triple bill is our favourite films... Under 80 minutes, or about 80 minutes long. Give or take, including yeah. credits and stuff. Basically, films that uh, probably take you less time to watch than it would to listen to one of these podcasts. That's the idea. <laughs> In a kind of... Um, uh, going back, to, harking back to uh, TV's premiere school holidays programme, Why Don't You uh, Turn Off Your TV and Do Something More Interesting Instead, or whatever it was. Why don't you stop listening to this podcast and listen to, and watch one of the films we recommend? Or, there you go. Or find um, an episode of this podcast that is the same length as a film you want to watch and see if the two sync up like um, The Wizard of Oz and that Pink Floyd album. I'm so doing that. that. <laughs> we really need to do a commentary, don't we, on a film? Some yeah, point. yeah. I'm, I'm excited by that yeah. idea. Yes, and we have been for the last six months or so. Yeah, I'll, I'll arrange it sometime. Yeah, maybe we'll do it from the cinema when we watch Man of Steel. We'll all just sit, I, yes. sit in the back talking <laughs> over the film. Uh, anyway, before that, we've got what we've been watching. But before that, we've got the news. But before that, we've got a quiz. <laughs> Genius. Yeah, and the quiz starts now. Okay. And we start with Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. Clueless Wet Hot American Summer That sounds brilliant (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like Good Girls Gone Bad or something Amazing Uh, Anchorman Oh Jerry Jerry. It's Jerry Paul Rudd Oh fuck yeah Ruddy hell it's Paul bloody Rudd (laughs) Oh Jerry's on the board Finally He's kicked off Today I've had a rest and recuperation, and I've come back swinging. You have indeed. Swinging, <laughs> and you're at the top of the list. 
Uh, right then, the news. And, James, there has been some sad news in the world of film this week, has there not? Yeah, in fact, um, today, sadly, uh, Ray Harryhausen, the, um, the the cinematic stop-motion genius who uh, basically brought to life films like Jason and the Argonauts, the original Clash of the Titans. Um, he died today, age 92. Good innings, to be fair to him. Um, yeah, he, he was uh, an American special effects guy who basically inspired George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, um, pretty much anyone who went on to do any kind of science fiction film or fantasy film. I think his his best known one is uh, the skeletons that come to life in Jason and the Argonauts. And that scared the shit out of me regularly on bank holidays and Sundays. Um, he he was a, a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker. Uh, will be sadly, sadly missed. Obviously, he, he hadn't worked in a long time, but his films will will stand the test of time. And he actually donated his collection of objects, 20,000 different objects, to the National Media Museum in Bradford. So there's a reason to go to Bradford as well, if you didn't have one before. Um, yeah, Edgar Wright said that he loved every single frame of Ray Harryhausen's work. He was the man who made me believe in monsters, which is which is nice. So, so it's sad to see the passing of Ray Harryhausen. Any of you guys... Uh, am I just a bit older than you? So I I watched it more than you or something. No, I love Steve it. said, yeah, oh dear. Yeah, I, I imagine Owen is a big fan. Yeah, I love Jason and the Argonauts. I think it's a fantastic yeah. film, and it is those skeletons that come to life that that kind of makes it that amazing fantasy film, isn't it? It's pretty yeah. iconic, isn't it? You know, those yeah. I think most people would recognise them, even if they don't really know who who was behind them. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a very unique style. So, yes. Um, the Sinbad film was pretty good as well. I remember watching that as a kid. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Sinbad films, yeah, yeah, definitely. Clash yeah. of the Titans is his other big one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. brilliant films. Well, he'll be sadly missed. Um, the other big bit of news that was out today that I didn't, I didn't think was that huge of news, but obviously it was a slow news day uh, in the film world because every single film account was tweeting about it. Was that? Tom Cruise has signed on to do another Mission Impossible film, which, to be honest, no huge surprise to me. I'm quite, I, I, as anyone who's seen my um, most recent blog post on the the site will know, I'm I'm a huge fan of Tom Cruise. Anyone who listened to me and Jerry argue about him a couple of weeks ago will know that I'm a huge fan of Tom Cruise. Um, I really like the last Mission Impossible, but I, I'm, I'll be honest, I, th- I didn't realise it was an issue whether or not he'd make another one anyway. I kind of assumed he would, so. There will be another Mission Impossible coming, and it looks like um, Jack Reacher, director, and uh, and obviously uh, usual suspect screenwriter Christopher McQuarrie is inked in to to direct that one, which will be interesting. Yeah, I quite like um, Jack Reacher. You know, to a point, yeah. it was a decent thriller, wasn't it? So, I think I'm in a minority though, where I think Mission Impossible Two is the best one of the the ones I've seen. Yeah. That that is such a hipster answer. But I just such a it's just so John Woo, isn't it? That film. I think it's it brilliant. is. But I, to me, it's where John Woo went fucking mad, yeah. mad, bad, and dangerous to know. That 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 was the moment where he, he was too John Woo. But to be honest, the third I, one was so bad I didn't even bother watching the fourth. I like the third one, but the fourth one's a, a genuinely good action film. So I hear, yeah. Also, going back to Chris McQuarrie, by the way, he is real hit and miss. You think he wrote the Usual Suspects? 
Mm. Not really written anything particularly good since, has he? Uh, no, it's a, well, it's, it's an interesting one because um, how much of the usual suspects was down to Brian Singer, um, mm. who has at least gone on to, if not critical, he, you know, he makes a lot of films. He seems to have gone quite mediocre recently. Although he's back in charge of X Men, isn't he? The new yeah. uh, Days of Future Past, is that right? Yep. Um, yeah, before yeah. he's writing the Wolverine film as well. Oh, is he? Yeah. Oh. Mm. Wolverine films don't inspire me with any, which is weird because we talked, we had a lot of a big long chat about Marvel Phase One last week, um, and we didn't really talk about that side of Marvel and how the Wolverine, the last Wolverine film was shockingly bad, and yeah, that that's kind of gone. I'm not, ex- I'm, it's out this year, isn't it? But I'm not at all excited by. It. I think no. it'll be okay. I mean, it's probably more going to focus on. Um, the surroundings and the villains rather than Wolverine in this film, I think. Whereas the original was like, the original, but you know, I'm talking about the previous one, Wolverine Origins was about his yeah. origins, wasn't it? So, yeah. I think it's, they don't have to try and introduce him again in a new and different way or try and explain his history. It can just be a yeah. film on its own. So, you know, I think it might be okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, apparently well, the, the comic that it's based on is supposed to be pretty good as well like there's mm. your eye sort of comic it's going to be decent yeah okay I never read Marvel comics so I wouldn't know but I'm, I'm sure it is quite good I, I actually read Iron Man Extremist this weekend which is what the uh, Iron Man 3 uh-huh. is based on uh, it's a really good comic just want to quickly okay, mention that cool. worth reading if you enjoyed the film okay and James we've got some site news as well well, not, not news, news. I just thought I'd let everyone know what's been going up, what's coming up soon. Uh, last week we saw um, a decade in film, 1993, uh, go up from Kate. Uh, I put forward a passionate defence of the work, the cinematic of, of Tom Cruise, which I would recommend anyone read, because I wrote it, because I'm like that, I'm a narcissist, just like Tom Cruise. Um, and... And, and I thought it was a good podcast last week as well. I really enjoyed it. So, good stuff up there. bit more coming up this week. few reviews. And there should be Matt Lamborn's 1983 piece at some point this week. They, they tend to be semi-regular, these decade in films. But, uh, yeah. Um, anyone who uh, wants to have a look at that, failcritics.com. Nice and easy. Lovely. Uh, well, after this brief musical interlude... We'll be back with what we have been watching. Uh, okay, what we have been watching then. Um, James, why don't you kick us off? Okay, yeah, I've watched a few things this week. Um, very, very briefly, uh, I, I started the, um, the Lone Wolf and Cub series this evening, in fact. Um, uh, Owen mentioned it on a podcast a long, long time ago. It might have been Best Fight Scenes. Yeah. Um, basically, um, it, the American market had a cut-up version of the first two Lone Wolf and Cub films, and it was badged Shogun Assassins, which I bought. But in a charity shop at the weekend, I found the entire original five-film box set um, for a fiver. Um, so I've started working my way through that, but I'm going to save that because I, uh, I have a feeling when we come to Father's Day and we do some kind of triple bill on movie movie dads, then that guy's going to be in there. So I'm leaving that. And the film I am going to talk about is 
Black Swan um, from 2010, which Owen, I think, watched re- mentioned that he'd watched recently on the podcast, but we didn't really get into much depth on it. It's directed by Darren Aronofsky, which I have to say is one of the most satisfying names in Hollywood to say. <laughs> uh, you know, Darren Aronofsky. It's, it's nice. Trips off the tongue, lovely. Um, it stars Natalie Portman, who won an Oscar uh, for Best Actress for this performance, uh, Mila Kunis, Barbara Hershey, and Vincent Cassell, cool as ever. Um, the idea behind this film, those of you who don't know, is Natalie Portman plays um, a New York City ballerina. Uh, her life is dance. She lives with an obsessive former ballerina mother who lives vicariously through her. Um, the artistic director of the, this New York ballet company, played by Vincent Cassell, decides he's going to rebrand Swan Lake. He's going with a new, young, fresh uh, swan. Uh, and he goes with Portman, gets rid of Winona Ryder, who is the old guard. Um, But there are doubts as to whether Nina, uh, who is Portman's character, can play both the white swan, who is technically perfect. um, And she's great at the white swan roles. Um, but can she also Film play the black podcast, swan, the dark heart, basically the evil twin? Um, and she starts to struggle mentally with the, the pressure of trying to live up to both roles, especially when a rival dancer uh, is on the scene, um, played by Mila Kunis. What I would say, uh, firstly, performances in this film, brilliant. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. It's actually got a very small principal cast, uh, which helps it. it. It almost feels like it's a stage play to begin with. Um, so very small cast, uh, but all of them on, on top form. It, Portman's incredible. She, her, she really, really balances a number of personalities. I think one of the one of her great successes is the fact that she is a a very good actress, um, and she shows fantastic range in this. And one of those bits of the range is calling for her to act as a repressed dancer who's incapable of on-stage emotion. So she's having to. She's a great actress having to act as if she's not a great actress, um, and she does that really, really well. But also in her dancing, uh, it's it. There's some brilliantly shot scenes of ballet. Now I've never been. A fan of ballet. I don't think I've, I've I've never been to see a ballet. I know what ballet looks like because every Christmas I'll flick through the channels and it'll be on BBC Two on Christmas Day or something like that, Nutcracker or something like that. So that's pretty much all I know of ballet. Um, but watching some of the the scenes, absolutely fantastic, really really enjoyable. Um, and apparently about eighty percent of it actually was Natalie Portman because she she trained as a ballet dancer from the ages of four to 13 and there's only some very complicated um i think they call it on point when they're actually dancing on their toes which looks brutal uh she had a dance double for those scenes so a really really strong performance like i say both acting and dance wise um the rest of it the direction and the narrative again really interesting at the end of the film i i couldn't quite work out if I liked the film, it was it was one of those for me where I went to bed on it, thought about it, and then next month I thought, no, actually, I, I genuinely love that film because it is it's a lot weirder than I expected it to be. I know it's not very um, it's not very professional, not very uh, not very, yeah clever reviewing. It was weird, but um, 
elements of it actually really reminded me of early Roman Polanski, especially Rosemary's Baby. This idea that you are so focused on one character and you see pretty much everything through their point of view. And then when all of a sudden they start becoming an unreliable witness to everything, you start to question what is reality in the film. And the film handles that really well because at no point do you feel confused or lied to. You're you're just genuinely trying to work out what is real, what isn't real, and it shows a very, it's a very good depiction of a the mental breakdown of a woman completely under stress. Um, so I I really really enjoyed it. And well, the other thing I would say is um, for those listeners who aren't quite into all that, um, Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis have a pretty awesome lesbian sex scene as well. So. Everyone's a winner. I was wondering when you were going to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting because um, my wife tweeted to say we were about to watch it. Uh, it better be as sexy as everyone said. And Owen, Owen tweeted her back and said it's not. It's too weird to be sexy. Yeah, and, no, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, oh, it is just a very weird moment, though, isn't it? It is, um, and, and and yeah, because it comes at the heart of her breakdown essentially Uh, and again uh, I don't want to spoil things too much but there you could spoil that for anyone (laughs) (laughs) if I tried joining in that would spoil it for everyone (laughs) Um, but yeah there's a there like I say there are elements of Rosemary's Baby I think there are elements of um, Fight Club there's there's a lot of it's a clever film but it's really melodramatic in places and that's part of what shocked me was actually it it's almost trashy in places it's this high art with this trashiness at the same time which while i was watching it i couldn't quite work out which way i was falling but like i say once i'd let it kind of settle and i'd have a think about it and i'd had a think about some of the imagery and i'd had a think about actually what did happen um it left me very satisfied yeah, I mean, it's interesting though when you talk about how it kind of draws on different films, and the ones that you've mentioned could probably be described as horror films almost. Mm. And it's that's not what I was expecting from Black Swan, but no. you know, it does give off a strong horror film sort of aura, and you know, definitely. It, yeah, no, that's right. I, and I didn't, I didn't think, like you said, I didn't think about it before I watched. I certainly didn't expect that from it. And even while I was watching it, I didn't think, oh, I'm watching a horror film. But no, you're right. There's there are some scenes which are straight out of mm. horror films. Yeah. There, you know, there's a few tropes. There are, uh, you know, there's body transformation. There is uh, hallucination, and there are some pretty violent scenes as well. Which are, you know, the, a scene with uh, Winona Ryder, for example, quite a. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. You know, Winona Ryder, um, Natalie Portman. Whoa, that shook me yeah. um, from out of nowhere. And yeah, that I, and I think that was quite clever because it did keep you on your toes the entire way through. Mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I don't think it is played just for shock value either. There's, it's, no. it's done in a very subtle. Uh, well, it's, it's obviously very unsubtle in its delivery, but the way it's it's yeah. sort of worked into the whole um, theme of the film is quite subtle. Mm. Uh, I, I found it quite interesting because this is actually the first um, Aronofsky film I've seen. I've been, I've got the wrestler on my planner. I've still not watched it. It's interesting. Apparently, this was meant to be a companion piece to the wrestler. Yeah, uh, I mean that's how I expected it. You know, when I sort of said about it being a bit horror filmy, I thought it would be like, um, you know, Jerry's before said about um, 
uh, Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth being a kind of brother and sister film. I'd seen The Wrestler yeah. previously, and I thought this would be just like the sister film to The Wrestler. Because uh, originally they were meant to be one film. It was a wrestler who was kind of in a relationship with a ballet dancer. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but then they went down, obviously, to quite separate paths. There, yeah, but... I'm glad they separated them out. <laughs> that would have been a bit weird. Um, but I've seen, have you seen, you've not seen The Fountain, then? No, I've not seen the fountain yet, that, but um, yeah, that's a, I've heard it's a weird. That's a, another one that you could call just a weird film, and just yeah. have to accept that that's all it can be because it is just so bizarre. Some of it is just right. brilliant. Some of it is really, really good, and other bits of it are just you've got your head in your hands. You know, can't believe that someone would put that on a film. It's so ridiculous. Um, oh, I see. So yeah, yeah. but mm, I think the wrestler's probably the best of the three. Okay, no, I'm going. I'm definitely going to watch a wrestler soon. One of my favourite sports films. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, uh, Jerry, what have you watched? Well, inspired by Iron Man three, I went back and watched the first one on Blu-ray. Um, largely because when I first watched it, it was it was kind of pre the whole Marvel Phase one thing, if you know what I mean. Mm. So I thought I'd go back and watch it with sort of a wiser head and sort of like spot things. Um, and there was a few bits that I had, I had, you know, I'd missed the first time round, and and were sort of references or little bits like Captain America's shield is on his wall in his lap. I didn't realise that. <laughs> Just a nice touch. Um, yeah, it stands up very well actually. It's, it's a few years since I've seen it. It's it's very good visually. It's still stunning. You know, it hasn't aged at all. Danny Jr. is just fantastic. He's like made for Iron Man, to be honest. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's, I, I'm not even sure he's acting half the time. Do you know what I mean? I think it's yeah. actually just Robert Downey Jr. just having a bit of a laugh. Yeah. Um, and I think we had a conversation about that last week because um, I, I, I think that he is the um, the actor which I will most identify with the super. And I, was, I, I personally think if he does ever leave Iron Man, it's going to be almost impossible to recast it unlike other superheroes these two disagreed with me but <laughs> yeah I mean my, my main argument probably shouldn't go too much into it because we'll just be going over yeah. ground but it was just that it's the first time you've seen Iron Man on screen so you can't think of anyone else in the role whereas yeah. it, where you've got Batman Christian Bale this time you've known four or five other Batmans so you know that other people can, people can play him. Yeah, I suppose. No, I mean I, he's 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 very well suited to it. Let's let's leave it at that. He, you know, I think it's hard to imagine someone else doing it. It's possible, but he he is. It's kind of what he was born to play that role. Mm. Do you know what I mean? He was. Yeah, I get that feeling. He's well, fantastically yeah. well suited to it. I think he he struggles to not do the Iron Man thing now in other films as well. I think he 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 finds that that is so easy for him and so successful. You know, you look at like the Sherlock films; that he's he's taken a lot of those elements with him, shall we say, in terms of the sort of charm. And I know a lot of it is Downey Jr. himself mm. bringing that, but it, it becomes it's almost like that role has started to define his career, and everything else seems a bit like he's doing something to do with Iron Man character and I think that that will be a challenge for him to, to move away and really try and redefine himself as an actor rather than as the guy who plays action, action, uh, Iron Man 
Yes, I, no, I agree with you on that actually because um, well, it's interesting. He got the Iron Man uh, gig after Kiss Kiss Bang. John Favreau loved him in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and I ha- there has definitely been a trajectory of that is a brilliant Robert Downey Jr. character that he now plays. And you're exactly right. Can he go on and really show some range? Because I think he used to in his in his younger days. Um, but it's a little bit like um, some of the actors we spoke about when we were talking about Tom Cruise, uh, you know, Denzel Washington, Harrison. At some point, sometimes you get to a level of fame where people just want you to do the same thing over and over again, and it'll be interesting to see where he goes. Yeah, um, I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow is still she's still a bit disappointing for me. I don't mind. Just yeah, she's annoying, to be honest. As much as anything, I don't think she does too much as that character. Which, incidentally, is like the worst name for a character in any kind of film. That's a <laughs> shit name. Um, but yeah, it's great. I mean, the, the storyline is fairly standard superhero fare. It's not particularly complex. It's not particularly surprising. You know, you can see the sort of the hidden, in inverted commas, villain. You can see that coming a mile away. There's, you know, it's not designed yeah. to be really tricky or, you know, have you on the edge of your seat in terms of the plot. It's, it's a standard thing of setting up very good set pieces, the dialogue's good, it, it, it sort of crackles, and, and it's very tight as well. I don't think it feels like there's a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of spare stuff in that film as well, you know, it's very lean, it's, it's quite well written. Mm. I think I, I, I realised that watching it the second time more than I, I did the first time, to be honest, because, you know, you see some of the superhero films, and it's not, you know, drawing things out to try and be atmospheric, which works with other thing, things, but there's a recognition that that isn't what is needed here. You know, what's needed is we'll crash through this story, we'll we'll get the characters really strong and we'll do a lot of really cool action sequences. And and to be honest, that's that's what it that's what it wants to do. It does that brilliantly. And I mean some of the action sequences the the, the highway fight sequence between the I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but the sort of closing highway fight sequence is absolutely superb. Mm. You know, even though I've seen it before, the, the it still has an impact. Uh, and it's just it's just an enjoyable film. It's great kind of for big Hollywood blockbusters that are sort of popcorn for the mind, and you just want to stick it on and get a bit of escapism and, and zone out for a couple of hours and really enjoy a film. It, it's brilliant. I mean, I don't know why people like some people get down on it, say you know it's dumb, it's very family oriented. Like, oh, it's just really enjoyable. Cheer up, you miserable shits. You know, I don't know why anybody hates on Iron Man. It's it's just a really enjoyable film franchise. Yeah, and I think when he goes into the Avengers as well, he's enjoyable. Yeah, oh, definitely. And actually, I'd, I'd watched Iron Man two for the first time last week, and I enjoyed that despite the fact that everyone really gets down on that. So, no, I, I love the Iron Man trilogy, uh, and I think it's it's definitely up there in terms of um, well, in terms of decent trilogies. Actually, yeah, oh, I'm big. Fan, I agree with you, Jerry. Big fan of the series. Okay, well. This week I watched a new release to try and keep this podcast fresh and new and relevant. (laughs) It was in in my summer preview where I went comedy only. Uh, It was 20 over, uh, starring no one you've probably heard of, but don't let that put you off. Um, The the dad of the main character, though, is the the man who ran the Dharma Initiative in Lost. So... uh, I did notice that, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and yeah, it's, it's basically three best friends from high school who are now all at college. Um, 
and they go to their best friend or one of the, you know one of the friends 21st birthday uh, Jeff Chang's 21st birthday but he shouldn't really be going out because he's got a big interview for a medical school place the next day and his dad is just a bit mental and you know serious and strict but they convince him to go out for one drink that turns into many drinks and in the in the manner of many films like this like super bad and hangover everything goes wrong um it's been getting fairly not very good reviews but i kind of disagree it's not a bad film it is not as funny as the first tank the hangover it's certainly funnier than the second hangover um it's not as funny as super bad but it is it is worth watching it is it is a funny film in parts um there's there's some there's some quite basic pretty you know, average unfunny humor in it like two of the boys get captured by a sorority that they've pissed off earlier on in the film and get hazed by them which is you know it's all stuff that you've seen before and not done in a very funny way but then there's some stuff that is quite funny there's one scene where they break into this sorority because they need to find jeff chang's friend who's a girl to find out where he lived to take him home and they break into the wrong sorority it's a latino sorority which they notice straight away and this girl that they need to meet is blonde they end up getting into a conversation about cameron diaz being latino and not looking like and not looking like one so it doesn't really mean anything which sounds bad while i'm describing it but it's actually quite <laughs> funny in the film yeah, it be there, I think. <laughs> yeah. um so yeah, it's definitely it's definitely worth a watch. It's not the funniest film you're ever going to see, but it's certainly funnier than the. Well, I can tell it'll be funnier than the new uh, Wayans Brother film that I saw a trailer for before this, which is basically a parody of Paranormal Activity, which just looks dreadful. So. Oh dear. Yes. Um, and it's it's got a nice bit of depth to the characters as well because. They're all best friends who have moved away to different colleges, universities, but they've all got various issues and problems that they don't feel they can talk to them each other about because while they used to be best friends, they're not really anymore because they don't keep in touch as much as they should or they'd like to. And then they, you know, you find out more about them and their problems and various things. Um, so it's not just sort of a phase of it, just free people getting drunk and being stupid. There's a bit more depth to the characters and you get in some films like this. Cool. Oh, I'll watch it on Netflix on, when it inevitably on, turns On a, an interesting point, because you know you said last week there was a, uh, a Chinese edit of Iron Man 3. Oh, yeah, I don't think that actually made it to the uh, podcast, though. I think I said that off air. Anyway, I, I, there, there, yeah. there's, a, there's been a Chinese version of this film made as well. Oh, really? Yeah, because yeah. the main character, Jeff Chang, is a Chinese-American uh, yeah, and in China, obviously, that didn't go down very well because he just went and got pissed and done lots of stupid things. Yeah. So in, they've made a Chinese edit of he's a um, a boy who leaves China who briefly goes to transfer to American college, gets corrupted by Western ways, and then he goes back to China a better person. <laughs> really? So yes, amazing. <laughs> they are, it's such an emerging market now that you just can't ignore. Jesus, that's. Bizarre. So many pirated films from China. How do yeah. they? Wh- who do they think's watching these different versions of them? Well, maybe the government has just sort of decided not to ban everything from the West, but just pay <laughs> money to make their own versions of. Them. <laughs> it's so That's weird. Just, yeah. Uh, and 
Right, Owen, let's finish off what we've been watching with your film. Okay, um, we did talk about Iron Man being a good trilogy. I watched I watched Godfather 3 for the first time ever. Um, I've talked about, well, we've, we've all talked about before, how amazing the first two Godfather films are, almost faultless to a point. Um, everything from the acting to the sound and the music that's used to them to the style of the, the era and... You know, even, the, obviously, I suppose, the story of sort of family, betrayal, loyalty, tradition. So it's almost inconceivable to me that so little effort can be expended on a final chapter in that story because Godfather 3 is just dreadful. I mean, it is just one of the worst movies I've seen for ages. Wow. I really just couldn't bear it. I, I watched an hour of it. And I thought, I'm going to have to just turn it off and do something else because it is boring me that much. Um, I mean, it's, it's the whole thing from the music to the... Even the acting, I thought, was dire to mm. the story. It's just completely made for TV, you know. There's mm. there's nothing that it resembles the first two films. It, nothing yeah, about it's it very soap opera, isn't it? It is yeah. very soap opera, yeah, exactly. Um so, well, I mean, okay, maybe I've been a bit harsh on the acting. I don't think Pacino is his worst performance. You know, probably, mm. I didn't really like him in Heat. I thought he really overdid it in Heat. And I think this is probably about on a par with that. Um, but if you compare the acting in this to the original, then it is some of the most uninspiring, some of the, the blandest performances you're going to see from from any of them, uh, anyone who's in it, it's just, it's just vanilla. The, the performances are just vanilla. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, the fact that it's been made so boring, the, the story and the characters, their relationships to each other, it just serves no purpose at all. You just do not care about, you know, what one person thinks of the other person. They're, they're all trying to go, you know, legit in their own different ways and, who cares? Nobody wants to watch Godfather for that. It just drags the mm. film out to this unjustifiable length of time. Three hours long, this film is. Three hours. Yeah. I watched two films that were three hours this week. One was Gandhi, which was really good. I thought it was fantastic, uh, you know, sometimes. Uh, Matt Lamborn talked about it on his Decade in Film article, mm. 1982. He's written a really good piece about it, which kind of inspired me to watch Gandhi. That was really good. That is That is a way that you can use three hours to make a film worth watching for that long godfather 3 is just a it's just an utter waste of time it it made me angry about how bad it was um you know i've heard i have heard rumors before before i saw it the godfather 3 it just it's not really at the level of the first two films you know people say uh it's it's all right you know the first two are good the third is it's not as good as the others you know it's got 68 percent on rotten tomatoes six 7.6 uh, percent even uh out of 10 on imdb it grossed over $130 million. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Um, I, I'm not lying. Those are true facts. That's, that's yeah. real. You can Google it. It's there. Um, How many awards? Seven. Seven Academy Awards. It was nominated. Christ alive. It's one of the only um, uh, sequels to be nominated for Best Picture. Uh, in fact, the, the trilogy is the uh, one of the only trilogies where all three were nominated for Best Picture. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know how it's... That w- it, I'm, I'm assuming it was nominated for Best Picture because it was The Godfather Part 3. No, I, I'd be honest, I don't remember it being as bad as you say, but it's a long time since I've seen it, but I do remember it being 
massively, massively underwhelming compared to the other two. It's it it beyond underwhelming, though. It's just yeah. a bad movie. I remember just wanting to turn it off because it, it felt like it was like shitting on the previous two films. Yeah, I mean, I just like, wanted to block it out. You know, I just like, oh, I'll just turn it off, pretend it doesn't exist, and with our lives. Yeah, like I so say, I turned it off after an hour. I, I went back and watched the rest of it, obviously, but you know, I, had, I just had to turn it off because I thought I'm not in the mood to watch another two hours of this. You know, yeah, it's just. It, it yeah, I was thinking, was that the start of um, Pacino's kind of fall from grace? But having a quick look, no, he went and did Glengarry Glen Ross, Scent of a Woman and Carlito's Way after this film. So no. Yeah, I mean, I like him in Insomnia. Even that was in mm, yeah. two thousand two, wasn't it? Um, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. So, um, I mean, I like him in that. I think he's pretty good. I know people sort of aren't so keen on his performance, but I thought he was good. And you think the film's, you know, you mentioned it's Fall from Grace. It was a very high position that he held for a long yeah. time. You know, Dog Day yeah. Afternoon was just, what a performance, and Serpico and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, he went Godfather, Serpico, Godfather Part 2, Dog Day Afternoon. That, Unrivaled, to me, is, yeah, is, yeah that is the most incredible run of film performances from an actor, I think, in the history of cinema. Yeah, and then um, to, to end up putting in the kind of shift he's done for this, it, mm. it's like two different actors. Yeah. You know, I don't... I don't I, yeah, I mean, I've, I could rant about it for, for much longer, but I'll just... I <laughs> think I'll cut it off there before I <laughs> run longer than 80 minutes, but... It's it's not a great film by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I'd say it was, it was a pretty awful film. Okay, um, let's have a little bit more music and then we'll do Triple Bill. Welcome back. Welcome to the Fail Critic Podcast, and it's our first triple bill in a long time. And it is films, I think we could quite safely say, 85 minutes and under. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Basically, the idea is, once the credits start, that uh, you know, if you turned it off, it should be less than uh, approximately 80 minutes or less. Oh, there's also one other thing, actually. Um, if you were searching IMDb... Uh, films are generally, if you watch them at home, are generally 4% uh, shorter on home media than they are in the cinema, because cinema runs at 24 frames per second, and PAL uh, runs at 25 frames per second. So they're going to be short for that reason as well. So that helps. There you go, geek fact. Anyone who wants to, yeah, anyone who wants to try and say, oh, well, that film's 84 minutes, yeah, on home media it's probably 80 minutes in that case. Yeah. There you go. There we are. Um, before we start with people's lists, Primer was 77 minutes long. Did anyone go for that? I did. <laughs> we'll, start, we'll start with you then. What was your three films? So yeah, let's start with Primer then. Uh, we've we've spoken about Primer on a few occasions here, but we haven't really talked about it in depth since very, very early on in the podcast <laughs> live. no one understands what the fuck is going on. <laughs> it's on this week, isn't it? It is on this week. Another reason why I chose it. It's on Friday night. So those of you, uh, it's on. I think it's on BBC or Film Four on Friday night. Film Four. It's in my picks yeah. of the week. Uh, so it's my Friday night it's, special. It's a, on TV. it's a good job it's on Film Four because you'll get adverts during it, and you'll probably need them to give you. Play. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's right. Uh, so yeah, uh, directed, written, and starring Shane Carruth. 
um, who was also a consultant on Looper. Um, he was there. Wasn't he their, their time travel consultant or something like that? I think they just went, will this work? And he went, no. And they went, okay. Yeah. This okay. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Here's some money. Here's a diagram. <laughs> <laughs> What I will say about okay, made for seven thousand um, dollars, and almost all of that went on film stock. Um, it is the most realistic, as realistic as a time travel film can be, um, and is reportedly the only time travel film without a single paradox in it. Apparently, uh, again, this might be why you need a diagram to understand what's going on. It, yeah, but. Because time travel is a complicated thing, and this film is very complicated. And that one of the reasons I chose this uh, film is because it somehow manages to be an hour and a quarter, and the amount of just mind-bending narrative it fits into an hour and a quarter make it does make you wonder how some films manage to nudge the two-hour mark with a pretty formulaic, generic. You know exactly where this story is going within the opening credits. So uh, one of the reasons I did want to basically those who don't know it, it's about four friends who um, uh, build error checking machines. See, I still don't know what an error checking machine is. So you know, I was we could really we do a by the infail critic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and two of them discover that one of their machines is acting a bit weirdly, and that discovery leads to the potential of time travel, um, and then things get really, really complicated. Um, you will need a diagram. The the other film that was almost on my list here, because I wanted to get one really low-budget film, because I think some, quite often films are made short simply because um, if when you were having to buy film, you had to make a short film because uh, you, you couldn't get the film made. So Christopher Nolan's debut following, was, uh, which I think is 68 minutes long, was also on my list here. But I went with Primer because I do think... It just the amount it packs into its 77 minutes is incredible. Do you actually get it? Do you understand it? Just about. But I'd, I need to watch it again, and I need to then read the diagram again. Um, but the thing is, even when I wasn't quite sure what was going on, I was enjoying it. it and I like that it, it really... It didn't treat the audience as idiots, it just made them feel like idiots. I think that's the best way I can describe it. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, my second film is from 1998. Comes in at 81 minutes theatrically. Um, directed by Tom Twyke. It's Run Lola Run, which is, again, it's one of my favourite films of the 90s, to be honest. It stars Frank Potenta, um, who most people know from The Bourne Identity. Um, the idea behind it is uh, Lola. Uh, the, the titular Lola has 20 minutes to find uh, and bring 100,000 Deutschmarks to her boyfriend Manny. He's got into trouble with the gangster. He needs the money or the gangster's going to kill him. Um, and so Manny is we- he's on the phone to her weighing up, robbing a supermarket and she's got 20 minutes to get there with the money. He gives her until midday. Um, and then the film goes through three separate 20 minute narratives it's kind of a bit like sliding doors or something like better than that uh basically but you know each time slightly different things happen in the narrative which means it goes off in a vastly different way so you've got three very similar to begin with narratives but they go off in very very different directions it's it's a great experiment in uh narrative structure 
brilliant performance, central performance by Franca Potenza. Really, really um, exciting. It's got a pounding soundtrack which just propels the film forward at an incredible rate, which was writ- also uh, written by Tom Twyker. So in John Carpenter-esque movie, directed it, he wrote it, and he did the music for it as well. Bill Dennis Watt did the theme tune and all that. Um, I, I genuinely love this film. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, oh, film can be a bit different. It really struck me as something that I just had never seen before, and it seemed like a really exciting use of a medium that, for me, at the time, I was probably a student when I first saw it, it felt like, oh, all these other people have been dicking around making normal films. This this really quite excites me. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it. No. It does sound good. I must admit. It's German though, Steve. So yeah, <laughs> subtitles. Oh, I watched Holy Motors and read through that. And... <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh no, you you you'd far more enjoy this. Yeah, if, I, uh, if I can do Holy Motors, I can do anything with subtitles. That that's exactly right. No, it's a really great film. And like I say, part of the part of the reason I d- chose this triple bill is because um, I've said it far too often on this podcast. Yeah, it just fills me with joy. It gives me a little spring in my step when I look at the runtime of a film and it's like less than an hour and a half. I'm like, oh, even if it's shit, I'm going to get through this with no problems. So um, it, it's definitely worth taking a look at. Okay, what's your final film? My final one. I don't. I don't think there will be crossover, but it's my most likely one for crossover here. Um, it's an Alfred Hitchcock film, uh, and I I nearly had the Thirty Nine Steps, the original one, uh, which would have just about been under. But but the film I prefer much more than that is Rope uh, from nineteen forty eight, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring James Stewart, uh, John Dahl, and Farley Granger. It's eighty minutes dead. Um, and part of the reason for that is it's directed from a Patrick Hamilton play and it is essentially a single take film. Uh, obviously, the technology at the time only allowed for uh, 12 minutes at a time to be fitted on a, a film reel. So it's essentially a series of 12 minute takes stitched together to look like one single take. But um, those of you who don't know about the film, it's about two young men who kill their inferior classmate. It's a, a, you know, a philosophical pondering about the perfect crime. And then they host a macabre dinner party with his body in the chest where they're going to eat dinner to challenge the perfection of their crime. But what they don't uh, count on is that one of their guests, their professor, uh, who is a huge intellectual, played by James Stewart, uh, is very suspicious of them. Uh, and it leads to a big dramatic denouement um, it's brilliant Hitchcock fantastic Hitchcock direction there is loads of brilliant tension um, a lot of great dialogue in it and it's actually very funny in places as well uh, elements of it are almost kind of farce at times you know there's a dead body and everyone's trying to not discover it and hide it and things like that um, but genuinely one of my favourite it's in my top five Hitchcock films easily a brilliant brilliant film I love it to bits good um, okay, Owen, what's on your list? Um, okay, I mean, I wanted to choose three different types of films. Um, so I was, I was kind of looking for, you know, because you could look at most uh, DVD collections of horror films and pick three of those easily that run under 80 minutes. But I wanted to sort of... Is that because of budget, do you, is, Owen? I think is so, that, yeah. I think that's like you were saying, that you know, it, because it's cheaper to make them that way. When you look at old 70s horror films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and so on, it it was just <laughs> easier and, you know, 
cheaper to to make them that short. But um, I have gone for one which is kind of it's a short film, um, but when you when you consider the films around at the time, it it's not really that short. So I've gone for Horse Feathers by the Marx Brothers, which is from 1932. Um, but when you think of the films that are around, like uh, Buster Keaton's films and Charlie Chaplin and Abbott and Costello and all that kind of thing, they were all just sort of really short. They were around sort of yeah. 60 minutes. Duck Soup was on my short list. Duck Soup, yeah. Was, well, I've kind of... Yeah. I've gone... 68 minutes, I think that is, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I was, um, I was considering Duck Soup as well. I'm not really sure what's the best Marx Brothers film. I think Horse Feathers, though, because it's the one that I fir- the first one of theirs that I saw... Mm. Uh, it, it, I think I've, I'll pick that one just to be a bit different, I suppose, to be a bit hipsterish. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I think it's still very funny. Harpo um, has always got some some of the, his best lapstick routines uh, and visual gags. Chico and Groucho got some brilliant um, back and forth dialogue in the in the film as well. Probably outshine Harpo a little bit in in Horse Feathers, to be honest. Um, I mean, yeah. they're both really clever, as always. Some of the gags though were just really stupid, as you, you know. They're just really silly, but at the same time, it's still pretty pretty witty. Um, I mean, the story is very simple. It's Groucho, who's a professor. He's played some guy called uh, Professor Wagstaff at Huxley University, um, and he he ends up hiring Chico and Harpo to play for the university's football team. I mean, like all good comedies, you're talking about um, twenty one and over earlier. Like every good comedy has just a very simple basic premise. And that's what this is. I mean, it's nothing too elaborate. It's not complicated. It doesn't rely on just increasingly absurd situations. It's all about the wit, the delivery, and the, the constant reel of gags that you get from someone like Groucho Marx. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I say, I'm not sure whether it's the Marx Brothers' best film. And it, some of it is really dated. You know, the jokes in there about him kicking his girlfriend's teeth down her throat kind of thing. And you think... Yeah, maybe they could edit that out of future versions. <laughs> um, but it's still, I think because it's the first one I saw and the, the first one of theirs that made me think, uh, uh, you know, that comedy, that kind of comedy is it's, it's something I'm interested in. I mean, I ended up buying the box set of the films and stuff. So, yeah, that's that's my first choice. So that's a comedy film. So to sort of counterbalance that, I had to pick a horror film, obviously. I know I said that, that you could pick as many of them as you want, but I went for a film specifically... Um, from 1962, uh, called Carnival of Souls. Because um, I thought I'd better pick it. As I mentioned on James' uh, 1962 Decade in Film article, that it would have been one of my choices. So, you know, it's the ideal opportunity to explain why, I guess. Um, I first learned about Carnival of Souls when reading about um, Night of the Living Dead, the original George Romero film. Uh, because apparently it's, it's a heavy influence on Romero. It's easy to see why. I don't think it's particularly a good horror film it's not amazing horror film uh, by which i mean it shouldn't be judged solely as a typical horror i mean it's it's got a lot of other things in there so we're talking about black swan carnival of souls could well have influenced uh black swan it's kind of got all that psychological um thriller elements to it uh, there's a lot of supernatural uh, mystery kind of stuff to it so it's, it's got a lot of different um elements that all combine into making this one type of film so when it gets it kind of gets unfairly labeled as just being an influential horror but it's 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 got more to it than that i think it spans wider than just the horror genre um but anyway the strength of the film is really in keeping the audience in suspense you know talking about hitchcock and he was the master of suspense mm. obviously this it kind of it, it's all about the suspense about the, the main character she, is she really being haunted is she really being visited by these sort of phantoms or is she 
um, you know, is there something else going on there? And I mean, it starts with the, the plot is actually about this girl who's run off the road in a car. She goes right over the edge of a bridge. Everyone uh, presumes she's drowned. They don't find anybody, but she eventually emerges from the water some time later. Um, and that's when she gets sort of plagued by this this ghoul, this sort of, this phantom almost. And uh, I mean, to quote IMDb, it's here that Mary must confront her personal demons of her spiritual insouciance. So. You know, it's kind of it's a it's a very strange um, story because it, it it sort of moves all over the place a little bit. Well, it's shot entirely in black and white. Some of the scenes just look brilliant. There's a chase scene towards the end of the film, which is just really disturbing, considering it's made on such a low budget. It's made by a guy called Herc Harvey. I think it was his only feature film. He'd only ever made short films before that. Um, so it's got everything's very tight. It kind of straddles a lot of different. Um, sort of different areas if you like but it, it's always very straight to the point and it, it's all it all fits together really well um but there's, there's stuff in there like it, it's really because it's shot in black and white it makes great use of sort of the blacks and whites of, of different things so that all these faces that the main character keeps seeing everywhere they're all these glowing white faces but they're always in the shadows in corners in sort of puddles and in, in streams and things so it's a really simple effect but it's done really well um, so I think it was a little bit of ahead of, ahead of its time as well. So um, yeah, it's definitely worth checking out, especially if you like um, stuff like Black Swan. You know, so it's, it's mm. got it's got that sort of psychological element to it where you, you're not sure what's really going on. So it's very, it's a really clever film and it's really good. And yeah, I definitely recommend it. But that's my only horror film choice. My final choice um, is an action film because I think the three genres outside of like kids films, which have to be short for a reason. Mm. The three genres that I think work quite well, short films, um, under 80 minutes, comedy films, horror films, and I think action films as well do quite well over it. Yeah. So, um, to, again, to try and pick something a bit different, I went for Showdown in Little Tokyo by Mark Lester, who is obviously most famous for directing Commando. Um, it stars Dolph Lundgren as a cop, Brandon Lee's his partner, Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa um, is a Yakuza boss, that's basically all you really need to know about the plot. There's not yeah, much else sold. to it. <laughs> it's this very simple cops versus bad guy in New York with a bit of like personal revenge thrown into the mix as well. Um, I suppose from a lot of perspectives, it's a pretty bad film. But it's one of those films that just goes beyond being bad into being, actually, this is pretty awesome. It's some of, some of the, the one-liners in it are brilliant. Um, the final set piece is, is fantastic. So it's not bad through being poorly made I just think it suffers from being a very it's, it's, okay Dolph Lundgren he's not the most charismatic actor in the world is he I mean I like the guy but come on yeah. he, he's not he's not going to carry a film on his own um, but he does well in this I mean I think he it's a very wooden performance but you know that he does everything he's supposed to do and he, he does it okay um, but it's it's um, yeah it's a very strange composition as well it feels at times like you've got bits of the film that are missing so it's, it's like some scenes are either too long or <laughs> someone kind of forgot to turn the camera off at an end of a scene so it just carries on for like someone walks out the door and then you're staring at the door for a few seconds um so it, it's a bit weird i don't know it's not as well made as commando i know for all commando's faults has, has been very 80s and of its time and stuff it is a very slick action film um so it's not as slick as that. It's a bit weird. I don't know whether he was trying to do something a bit more arty. Well, I don't know, but it's it's not anywhere near <laughs> near as well put together as that. But it's um, you know 
Dolph Lundgren doing what he does well. Brandon Lee in a film other than The Crow. Um, <laughs> I quite like Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa, even though I can't say his name properly. I think he's he's good in films. You know, I think he's been in um, he was in Mortal Kombat as Raiden. Uh, no, he wasn't Raiden. He was um, the bad guy in Mortal Kombat film, which is another film that I know is a really bad film, but I got quite a bit of nostalgia attached to that, so I quite like that. And I think he's a good actor anyway. I think he's, he's pretty decent. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's great. It's it's what you want from an 80-minute action film. You know, it's got one-liners, it's got a lot of action in it, it's got a bit of humour, great villain, some brilliant death scenes. That's it, really. There isn't much else that you need from it, and it does it well. And I think it's just sort of an example of how to do that well. So, yeah, that's my final choice. Okay. Uh, My list... This is one of the hardest triple builds we've had to do, actually. I think, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I think we, many people would argue with us there. No. Um, but I managed to find three films that I'd seen more than anything. <laughs> no, I'd, say, I'd seen plenty of them um, once I'd found out a few. A few I was surprised that... I was surprised that Owen didn't pick um, the original Wreck or Record, which was... Yeah, I had Owen down for uh, Army of Darkness as well. Yes, uh, I thought he'd pick one of those two. Um, obviously not. You've disappointed us there. <laughs> I feel let down. <laughs> Got nothing to say for himself. No. Right. Uh, anyway, my first pick was 1995's 81 minutes long Toy Story. Crossover. Yeah. Uh, it's nearly on my list as well. I think everyone knows the the story by now. If they haven't, then why haven't you seen Toy Story? Um, I know. Maybe you think you're a grown-up and it's a kid's film. Well, well you are, and it is, but it doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the best Pixar film, and it's also where it all began. Um, and it is, obviously, for those who don't know, the story of... Toys are real, basically. They come to life when people aren't around. And this boy, Andy's got a cowboy doll. It's called Woody, voiced by Tom Hanks. Then Andy gets a spaceman for his birthday, who's voiced by Tim Allen, who's called Buzz Lightyear. Um, And the two don't get on. Woody is very jealous of the new toy's popularity. So, um, and the film carries on from there. It's, it's It's a brilliant performance or brilliant film brilliant plot and um about as good a voice performance as you're going to get in an animated film from from all involved yeah it's 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 just such a brilliant film it's 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 a genuinely perfect film uh nice simple clean story great jokes like you say great voice performance yeah yeah anyone who doesn't love toy story is dead inside and it's well I mean, we were on about trilogies earlier with with Godfather. It's, yeah. The story is an example of a of what you don't get often uh, a trilogy where all three films are excellent. Yes, yeah, definitely. I think what you said as well, Steve, about it, where it, it's where it all began. It kind of launched well the phenomenon that is Pixar now, but it also provided the springboard for like oh god, countless other computer animated films. Yeah, which really, if you think of like sort of kids' films and family films, they they really dominate the landscape now. I mean, that's that's the go-to way of doing things. 
But, um, and how... because Toy Story was, it was a gamble when it was made. I mean, it's, it's easy to forget this was a real gamble because this was a completely sort of new way of doing mainstream film. I, I remember watching a documentary about it, and, it, and they've said something stupid like it makes about takes about two hours for us right. to make Woody smile. Or sort of, fuck that. Yeah. It's essentially. But no, so, um, so kind of imagine if Cars had been to, uh, Pixar's first film. I know, yeah, it would it would have killed. Um, it, it, yeah, no, you're exactly right. That's the great thing about Toy Story is that they, they just hit it out of the park, first go. Uh, it's, you know, it's it, like a their debut. That's that's an incredible debut. And they, they kept it going for a little bit as well. Um, and like you say, it's only kind of recent years that it, they've started to rest on their laurels a little bit. But it's, you know, Brave was still very good. And oh yeah, but, no. But no, no. to make sequels of the films that they've already like Cars Two. Cars was fine. Wasn't mm. it? Cars Two was terrible. And it's when you, know, you worry about kind of monsters universe. Yeah. Is it going to be good or is it going to be another Cars? T- yeah. You know. Um. Anyway, second film on my list was. Uh, I'm trying to find out the runtime. Eighty-one minutes as well. From 1999, South Park, bigger, longer, and uncut. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, crossover again. I've purposely done this so we don't have to listen to much of Jerry. I <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I purposely did it so we didn't have to listen to too much of you and it's backfired horribly on me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, essentially, like I said, like some Toy Story, everyone must know the plot of this one by now. But the four central characters from the TV program South Park um, go see a R-rated movie starring Terence and Philip. Um, they get corrupted by it allegedly, and their parents end up making the USA go to war with Canada, where Terence and Philip are from. And it's got the humour of Trey Parker and Matt Stone throughout the film. Um, as well as the humour of South Park, obviously, and also kind of takes the mimic out of censorship and that kind of thing as well. Brilliant! One of my favourite musicals as well. <laughs> yes, as, as well we know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I. Like, it's it, like, it's, it, I think controversy kind of often hides like the, what I think is absolute genius from South Park and the, the writing in particular I mean there's nothing that matches it in terms of satire you know in modern TV or in this case film but particularly in modern TV and visual I think I've said it before there's, there's no one that can sort of skewer western culture and particularly American culture in the same way that the South Park does mm. um, and to produce uh, to make a film about kids watching a film and parents going apeshit over it corrupting them it's just self-referential comedy gold. I mean, they made a film about everyone going apeshit about South Park. Mm, yeah, they made that the film. They've obviously just done a musical, uh, The Book of Mormon, but they're fantastic at writing songs as well. I mean, some of the songs in South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut, are just amazing. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's some there's some cracking ones. And, you know, there's there's... The vast, vast majority of it is totally original as well. I mean, there's one or two where they're taking stuff off, but most of it's completely original, and that, you know, that's commendable. But I, I never realised as well, I found this out, they did um, 
a culture show special on the Book of Mormon recently. Don't know if anybody else caught it. I no, I missed it. I had never no. realised that they they do every episode of South Park in a week. Yeah, have you not? Have you seen? Is it? It's on Netflix. A documentary. Six days to air. Yeah, and it's just yeah. It's really good. Really interesting to see how quick it takes them to turn around because I suppose with South Park the animation isn't too strenuous. It's not you know even as on level the animation kind of difficulty of it isn't on the level of even the Simpsons or Family Guy or something. No, they were saying as well, like, they were showing the original, the, the sort of, the pilot episode, what they did for the pilot episode. I mean, they just produced, like, and it was real, like, cut out of, they cut it all out of card and paper. Mm. And did that, and, like, to do a bus drive, the school bus drive away, they just had a load of successively smaller models. Yeah. <laughs> to do that, I mean, it's fantastic. But now, he's, you know, obviously they've got the computers doing most of the work, I imagine. But even just to write it, so that, I mean, it is very fresh when it's, you know, if you're watching South Park as it comes out. Because everything you see there is, when it's new, newly released, is so topical. So to write something that funny, that quickly, is must be incredibly difficult. Yeah. And I mean, obviously they had longer for, for this one, but it's still, the, the best thing about this, the, the South Park film, is it still feels tight, like, a, like, a, like an episode of TV is. You know, it's ram-packed with, with jokes and gags, and, and there's nothing there's nothing really wasted here. Do you know what I mean? This, the whole thing, I know this takes bigger, longer, and uncut, but it, it's kind of, it retains the, the program's way of cramming loads and loads of funny stuff into a very short period of time. But for me, it kind of marked, if you look at the first couple of series of South Park, a lot of it does seem to be kind of crass humour and kids swearing. It doesn't seem to be really until the time they made the film, until it becomes more satirical. Um, it becomes much more consistent after the film, yeah. Yeah. Well, part of that will be um, if they'd pitched it as... Um, no, it's a comment, it's satire on American values and American culture. No one would have made it. They went, it's kids swearing. And it's, it's quite... It's nice that they basically... They got it in by stealth. So they got in through the front door with the the crassness and then obviously they got to do what they had always wanted to do which is completely skew american culture um you know basically that they had to win people over um but yeah you're right when you look back at the first series it does seem really juvenile it's just very inconsistent there's some real yeah. sort of gems in there and then sort of it's just mm. like you know shit gags basically yeah talking christmas shit yeah 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 <laughs> But uh, within that, there's you know this this satire. There, but this I think probably the discipline of making the film probably honed that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Just the very discipline of having to bring it out to eight or minutes, thinking right. Well, we, the, there's got to be sort of a theme to this now. We can't just have you know a few things happening in, in twenty minutes and and done. You're really forced to make this into a much more complex thing, and there has to be something more going on. And that's probably where it's come from, really. You make a film, it has to have something to tie it together in order to work. So, all the episodes after that, they realise, oh yeah, we just have something to tie it together, and it works much better. Wow, great film though. Uh, my final film is 83 minutes long. It's from 2011, and it is Jeff Who Lives at Home. Oh yes. Which I've only seen recently. It stars Jason Segel, Ed Helms, and is directed by Jay and Mark Duplass. And 
about Jeff, who is 30-odd, lives in his mum's basement in his oasis space, ends up spending the day basically helping his brother, who's in an unhappy marriage. Um, but the two brothers don't really get on either. And maybe I liked it so much because either I identified with Jeff or I can see myself <laughs> identifying with Jeff if I don't give myself a kick up the arse. <laughs> so, um, I know James is a big fan of this film. Yeah, and Jerry liked it as well. Yeah, yeah. When, when it, it made my shot, to be fair. And I think part of it is Jason, Jason Segel so likeable in most things that he's in. I'm not sure. He's, he's sort of semi-likeable in this, though. There's a real sort of duality to his character. He's not just a lovable bumbling idiot is he there's some things you just think oh stop being a dick you know yes I did get that sense as well although I you think know, that makes it work you know, yeah. don't get me wrong <clears throat> yeah no definitely he is he is someone you want to give him a hug but also blooming, give him a big shake as well and say pull your you know get your life back together but yeah you kind of end up seeing his point of view throughout the film but uh yeah, no, I think it is good. They're, they're, they're all flawed characters in the film, and that, that works as well. Yeah, everyone in the film is, is not black and white. It's, uh, you know, there's some great moments. Uh, I, I, I loved it. I thought it was a lovely little film. Okay, so, Jerry, you've got one film left. Wow us. Okay. Uh, oh, also, I need to point out, in the course of doing my research for this, right, I was reminded that The Jungle Book 2 exists. Oh dear! I've yeah. wiped that entirely from my memory. I was reminded oh. that they made a Jungle Book too. Oh, Awful. God. Yeah. Awful. Anyway, um, I did think there was a couple. I considered March of the Penguins. That was almost there until the mm. very final minute because it's, it's a good documentary. Love it. Yeah. Feature length. It was kind of it made waves and it was it got quite a big cinematic release. Yeah, it was a real crossover hit, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it got a lot of recognition. But um, I tried to go with James' kind of criteria of it working for being short. You know, the, the short length really working with the film. And I went for Blair Witch Project because I think the sort of lo-fi, short mm. nature of it is what makes it. So I thought Owen might have gone. Yeah, no, for that. it's a good choice. Well, like I say, I was trying not to pick just three horror films. Yeah, so I'm no, glad someone's yeah. um, someone's nominated it. Yeah, I mean, it, it needs that sort of frantic pace to it, and it needs to not have any kind. It needs to be a really lean film to work. The Blair Witch Project, you know, it doesn't need to be padded out massively. There's no need for a sort of great deal of complexity, or you know, you don't need to do long fucking beautiful scenery shots with the Blair Witch Project, do you? That's not what it's about. And I think it really works well with the, the sort of the short thing. It's an hour and it's 81 minutes. It's an hour and 21 minutes. And it's it's everything that lo-fi filming should be. But it also uses the very lo-fi aspect of it to do something that at the time was very different, let's be honest. I mean, that was as much as I'm kind of tired of found footage films now. That was pretty. It was pretty revolutionary when it came out. We thought. Oh, definitely, it was fresh. Mm. Um, yeah, no, it's it's it's. I'd say, although it's not the original, 
uh, found footage. It's the one that it's the kind of it spawned the birth of found footage as a modern genre. Obviously, films had done that before, but it's just its huge success made it possible for for that to happen. So, and also, it does stick within my. I like it as a found footage film because it's got a documentary crew, so that's fine. That as we've already had this discussion many times. So, no, but I, I really, really do like. Uh, Blair Witch, I think it's great. It was on my shortlist as well. It's um, it is it, it and the other reason that it is lean is because it's believable. Because film was expensive and they were shooting on film. If they're a student, um, film crew, then yeah, they wouldn't have shot loads of footage because you know that. So it, it's all really believable um, and creepy as fuck towards the end as well. So. Uh, no, that's a great choice, Jerry. Yeah, I mean, I think as well. I mean, as we were sort of, I was in school at the time, and you know, fairly, fairly young, and and there was a lot of people. There was a real, genuine sort of thing going around that it was, you know, it was real because it was a documentary, you know, and it was. Yeah. This was actually found, and it was it was fucking terrifying, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember. I remember hearing that because um, I think I would have been like nineteen or something. But it's really weird. It was a film that was made for a few thousand dollars, but I saw it on its opening night in a packed cinema, and I booked tickets. And you know, so it gives you an idea of what a cultural phenomenon it was at the time. It it was huge, uh, and its impact, you know, it it cannot be understated. And it's a bit of a show. Owen might be able to fill me in on this, but has anyone connected with the film actually ever gone on to do much since? Well, n- nothing of uh, any real note, I don't think. And that also, in in a weird way, is quite incredible, isn't it? Um, yeah, the, but, the fact you know it is, but perhaps they were one-trick ponies, maybe. Yeah, you know, possibly. It's... Hasn't stopped the uh, paranormal activity, people. Brunch. Oh, I'm not having <laughs> that. <laughs> okay. Um, well, that's that's triple bill uh, finished. A uh, bit more music for you, and then we'll be back with our recommendations for next week. Right, final part of the podcast for this week, then. What uh, we recommend you to watch in the next week or so. Um, I'm going to kick off with a couple of things that's on Netflix US. Cabin in the Woods is new on there. And that's yeah. that's well worth a watch. I think everyone Our first ever podcast. Yes, and I think everyone who on the podcast has seen it enjoyed it. Um, yeah. So definitely watch that. There's also a documentary on there that looks quite interesting. I'm going to take a look at it. It's called Side by Side. It's voiced uh, or narrated by Keanu Reeves. So I suppose if you can get over his droll voice, you'll be all right. But it's it's about um, the history of digital technology in film. And it's got interviews and pieces with a lot of top name directors like Scorsese and and um, James Cameron and George Lucas, etc., etc. We've all used a lot of digital technology in various films of theirs. Um, interesting to see what they think of it and um, what benefits it's given them making the films that they make. Yeah, that looks really interesting. I want to see that as well, definitely. So they're both on Netflix US. Uh, Jerry, what are you going to tell people to watch? I have gone for uh, Netflix UK, and there's 
there's quite a few. They, they seem to be loading a load of animated films on at the moment. And as tempted as I was for sentimental reasons to go for The Rescuers or The Rescuers Down Under, uh, <laughs> I think Ratatouille doesn't get enough love. I'm a big fan of Ratatouille. Mm. I think it's a really underrated Pixar film. Uh, there's loads of great jokes about the French in there, which you can't you can't knock really. Uh, but it, it's a genuinely really good film, and I know it's on it's on TV quite a lot as well. But if you haven't watched it in a while, go go and watch it. Or if you've never seen it, watch it. it it's it's good. I think it's it's one of those Pixar films that gets forgotten about, mm. but, it, but it's very very good. Yeah, it's like it's like the um, the Incredibles as well. I think that's a lot better than people give it credit for. Mm. Mm. Nice. Okay, James. What? Um, I'm going to recommend something in cinemas. I went to see it uh, at the weekend. I took, I took Kate's gran, and we were the only two people in the cinema to see it. It was amazing. Uh, I went to see Chimpanzee, the new Disney nature film, and it was interesting. Jerry talked about March of the Penguins. This is this follows a kind of similar idea. Uh, this is basically a nature film about a young chimpanzee called Oscar. Um, and it's about his life growing up as a young chimpanzee but while they were filming it his his mum got killed and the story is about how the alpha male of the group essentially becomes a, a surrogate father an adoptive father to oscar it's a really really sweet story um you cried you have me. got I, I nearly nearly <laughs> nearly did uh you have got the usual and he, even much the penguins suffered from this. Uh, the fact that they anthropomorphise these animals, the fact that you know they give them human names, like the alpha, they called this chimp Oscar. The uh, the alpha male's called Freddy, and there's a rival gang of chimpanzees, and they call the lead, and you know that he's named Scar, the leader of that one. So like, all oh, right, so they're the bad chimpanzees. And the fact is, there aren't good chim- <laughs> chimpanzees and bad chimpanzees. There are just chimpanzees fighting over territory. Um, but you know this story is. Because it's aimed at a family audience, it's to. It, in fact, if it it could easily be an animated film that I was watching it, thinking I could imagine someone writing this and animating it as a film. Um, so you, you've got to get past that a little bit if that's going to irk you. You know, it's not a David Attenborough film. Um, and it's, it's narrated by Tim. Uh, narrated by Tim Allen, which. Um, is odd again. March of the Penguins had Morgan Freeman's wonderful, beautiful uh, narration, and this is a bit more folksy. Um, and in fact, it is almost like there's a scene where the the chimps are using tools, and it is like they went, "Oh right, we got some stuff where they use tools. Oh, we should get that guy, you know, who did Tool Time. Let's get." So he basically gets to do his. Uh, chimp, oh, 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 power tools type stuff. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it, and that's pleasant enough. And there, there's a few good jokes, but the the selling point of this is some of the most incredible wildlife documentary footage that you'll see. That the footage they get and how close they get to the chimpanzees. If you are interested at all in wildlife documentaries, it's a fantastic film for that alone. Some of the um, the vistas of the uh, the jungle. Uh, in Africa, uh, incredible the rooftop canopies of the rainforest. There is some really incredible photography, here, some great time lapse photography, some great slow motion. That so all of that put together, it was and, and it was under eighty minutes as well. It was uh, an hour and seventeen minutes. So um, I'd highly recommend going to see that as long as you, as long as you're not expecting something like BBC's Planet Earth. Okay, and Owen, what are you going to tell everyone to watch? 
Um, there's a film on Saturday uh, at quarter past one on BBC Two called Kind Hearts and Coronets. Uh, oh yeah, 19- I didn't realise that was on. Yeah, 1949 comedy film, very black comedy film. It's got Alec Guinness in it, uh, who's very funny. Kind of reminds me a little bit of an early Pete Sellers in Kind Hearts and Coronets. I think they've mm. got similar sort of um, uh, performance etiquette, if you like, during that film. It's very, yeah, but it's very dry, very dark humour. It's about a guy who um, decides that he's going to become um, the head of the aristocratic family that he's from. He's going to be a duke, uh, which is his his birthright after his. I think it's his mom that's murdered, is she, or she dies or something? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So he decides he's going to get his position back by murdering everybody who's a potential successor who's in his way, basically. So it's yeah, it's very dark. It could, could almost be written by someone like Hugo Blick, you know. It's that that mm. sort of style. But um, so it's very ahead of its time. Well worth a watch. Though. It's very funny. I'd, I'd just say, and directly after that, you get another Ealing comedy, uh, The Man in the White Suit, which also stars Alec Guinness, which is also a really, really great, funny Ealing comedy. So that's a gr- you've got a double bill on Saturday afternoon there, the the highest calibre. Yep. <laughs> there you go. That's my pick. And that is all for this week's podcast. Uh, Next week, we'll be back with a review of the new film in the Star Trek franchise, uh, Into Darkness. Um, So thanks to everyone who's contributed this week, including Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the music. We'll be back next week, as I said, with Star Trek Into Darkness. The Fail Critics Podcast was devised and produced by James Diamond, hosted by Steve Norman, with contributions from Owen Hughes and Jerry McCauley. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, and you can find us at failedcritics.com and on Twitter at at failedcritics. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.